0: Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. So today we're starting the show with a quiz. And the ground rules here are that speed is more important than accuracy because there's actually no real right answer. So just say what comes to mind. Okay. Ready? So finish this sentence. I am blank. This is a description of you. What is the first thing that comes to mind when you think about yourself? I am blank.
1: So I probably would have said something like, I am a scientist or I am a kayaker.
0: JOSEPH HENRICH IS CHAIR OF THE DEPARTMENT OF HUMAN EVOLUTIONARY BIOLOGY AT Harvard. Now, my first thought when I tried to answer this question was, I'm funny. I'm actually not all that funny, but I was trying to answer fast, and that's just what came to mind. And this is a very important question when it comes to how history has unfolded and why some societies are particularly innovative. At least, that's what Henrik argues in a sweeping new book that makes at least two big claims. First, much of what we assume to be normal human psychology isn't. Second, those of us in Western societies are who we are, because about 1,500 years ago, religious leaders cooked up some new ideas about marriage. For now, though, back to who you are. You know that question I asked, I am blank? What did you say?
1: What psychologists have found over decades of research on this question is that answering the I am or another version of is the who am I question. It tells us what's important about ourselves or how we think about ourselves. And sometimes it can be aspirational. So what we aspire to be or where we think we're going. Or it can just be about our self-identity.
0: Your answer probably reveals a lot about where you live, which is probably in a Western democracy, and it also reveals what kind of educational background you have. You probably know how to read. You may have been to college. And that, Henrik says, makes you weird. Not just weird in today's world, since most people don't live in Western democracies, and most people certainly haven't been to college, but weird across the sweep of human history. Weird when compared with your own ancestors. And you don't just act weird, your brain is actually different if you know how to read, which we're going to get to. And that can impact your savings rate, your inventiveness, and the GDP of your country. And the big division we find across populations is the degree to which people
1: see these, they answer the question in terms of their aspirations and individual characteristics, Uh, and sort of positive personal qualities versus the relationships. So I could have answered the question by uh, saying, I am Zoe's father or Natalie's
0: husband. Uh, These would be about key relationships in my life. But Henrik didn't do that. And you probably didn't either. His answer was about being a scientist or being a kayaker. You might've said something similar or you might've picked a quality that you see in yourself like I am creative. When this test was given to undergraduates in Illinois, They describe themselves by picking qualities. Undergraduates
1: are notoriously deeply focused on themselves and their personal attributes. So in that particular study, actually everyone gave all the answers were about their own characteristics. So it might be curious, funny, smart, athletic, something like that.
0: But undergraduates are weird. Actually, they're about as weird as it gets, says Henrik, who's the author of the book The Weirdest People in the World, How the West Became Psychologically Peculiar and Particularly Prosperous. I talked to him back in 2020. He says most people today and across the sweep of history, they would never think to answer like the Illinois undergrads.
1: So they might say, I am a member of a certain clan, or I am a name, a certain tribal group or an ethnic group, or they might name their relationships. I'm so-and-so's father or so-and-so's daughter or son. So Americans, and particularly American undergraduates, are at the far end of the distribution in really focusing on their own characteristics and attributes and, and things that are very much focused on themselves rather than their relationships.
0: And I should say, when Henrik talks about weird, it stands not just for general weirdness, but it's also an acronym, Western, Educated, Industrialized, Rich, and Democratic. Undergrads, in some ways, are particularly weird, even in the U.S., because they tend to be from somewhat richer, more mobile, and more educated families than the population at large. So why do some people think about who they are differently than how other people think about who they are? Well, you've got certain skills, like again, reading, and you've got a way of analyzing problems that you've been taught. And those skills have changed your brain. Now hopscotch across the world for a minute from Illinois to Kenya. In Kenya, the Maasai people took the test that you took about who they are. And so did a bunch of college kids in the Kenyan capital, Nairobi. Turns out Nairobi might as well be in Illinois.
1: So the Maasai—that's a sort of an uh, ethno-linguistic group that lives in northern Tanzania and southern Kenya. They traditionally live in patrilineal clans. They're cattle herders, and your life is very much influenced by the kinds of relationships that you're born into. So you have a whole set of kinship relationships, for example, that organize your life, and then you, your your clan membership then determines your relationship to other groups. Your identity as a Maasai determines how you relate to other ethno-linguistic groups in Kenya or in Tanzania. And so they contrast with students, university students, who are, you know, sampled from a particular upper class of Kenyan society. Mm. They live in an urban area. They're getting a university education. And they're much more likely. I mean, they're not American undergraduates, but they're more likely to finish with uh, their characteristics and aspirations rather than their relationships.
0: And you say, this is not because the Maasai are weird and aberrant. Um, it's really the college kids in Nairobi who are weird.
1: Right, right. Because they're moving into an institution, a university and a society, an open labor market, merocratic based institutions where one needs to cultivate one's own uniqueness and one's own set of skills, not only to get a job, but to find friends and find mates and uh, spouses and things like that. So it's a whole different world than the Maasai who have arranged marriage and will maintain the same set of social relationships throughout their lives. And the kind of world the Maasai lives in is much more like most of humanity has lived in until, you know, uh, the last few hundred years for much of the world and the last half millennium, say, for uh, places like Europe.
0: So we talked about, okay, you've got undergraduates, and it almost doesn't matter where they are, um, versus people in these kind of more traditional societies and how they think differently. And one of the things you argue, which really struck me, is that folks who have adopted a kind of Western way of thinking, they actually have brains that are physically different from people who, like the Maasai, let's say. I don't even understand how that's – how is that possible if, let's say, we're contrasting again like the Maasai with college kids in Nairobi. So it's not like you're saying, oh, people from this country are different from people from this country. That's not what you're saying. You're saying a certain way of thinking changes your brain.
1: Yeah. A lot of new evidence from neuroscience that's appeared in the last couple decades is consistent with this idea that that human brains have evolved – to have a lot of plasticity that they adapt you know and that the structure changes physically in order to allow us to better adapt to the kinds of institutions or technologies or languages we face in the world so that we get better at figuring out what kinds of information to process so what to pay attention to or who to pay attention to what kinds of things to remember or attend to so some of the most interesting work on this front is comparing American undergraduates with students from China who are are attending the University of Michigan. And they find it just what people pay attention to and, and remember from a scene is different. The Americans tend to focus on the focal object or individual. They don't remember much about the background. But if you're from somewhere different, you tend to remember what's in the background. You spend a lot more time looking at what's back there. So it even changes kind of what are seemingly basic aspects of psychology, like attention and memory.
0: So can I ask you about that? So if you have a scene where like, you know, a girl is walking through a a city street, you're saying people from a certain part of the world look at the girl more than the street and people from another part of the world may pay a lot of attention to like what's going on in the background. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. And why?
1: Well, so one idea is that in some kinds of environments. It's just more important to gather the information about the focal individual. That's where the key information okay. is. And then in other places, you need to know how all the parts fit together. So you're looking for the relationships among parts. So if you want to explain the girl's behavior, for example, you need to know where she is, who's around her, what are the people around her, because her actions and behavior are going to depend on the context and the relationships. Whereas the way, uh, People from the US, for example, my population, they're gonna tend to think she has dispositional traits. So is she gonna be trustworthy or is she gonna be smart? And these are gonna be constant across contexts. So part of it is a theory about how different populations explain people's behavior.
0: And you're saying when you then physically look at people's brains, like the actual way these brains look, they look different if you've been sort of educated in a certain way versus educated in a different way in terms of priorities.
1: Yeah, because the affordances and demands of your social environment are different. So one of the ways I opened the book was with a simple example about reading. And so, of course, for most of human history, most people didn't learn to read. But then once you go to school and you learn to read, you get a thicker corpus callosa. That's the information highway that connects your two hemispheres and you get specialized circuitry in your left hemisphere. So these are changes that make you a good reader and allow you to read things automatically and unconsciously and these kinds of things. But that's just one example. We now have lots of cultural neuroscience showing that we specialize different parts of our brain depending on the the kind of worlds we're confronting repeatedly.
0: And and there are downsides to this. You say like when our brains change in certain ways, um, in the in the kind of Western education ways, we also get like, for example, less good at remembering faces and being able to pick people out by faces.
1: Yeah. So there's cost to developing any kind of skill because that means there's some neurogeography that gets used up. Okay. There's a little bit of a debate about this in neuroscience, but the idea is that as part of building your ability to recognize letters and read words, you're actually impinging upon the part of the brain that's usually specialized for facial recognition. And this leaves literate people, literate populations, biased towards the right hemisphere in facial recognition. Whereas if you study illiterates, they seem to be recognizing faces equally among the two sides. So you can think of it as impinging upon space normally used for face recognition on the left and then taxing the right an extra amount, which seems to, at least in some studies, result in diminished facial recognition. The thing is we're finding this in other things. So kids who attend school may be worse at general pattern recognition. There's a little bit of kind of research on that and also... Knowing where you are geographically in space, so you can give people tests where you take them out into the forest and say, point in such and such town or point, you know, give them different places they're supposed to point to that are far away and see how good their dead reckoning is. And people in societies with no schools where people live off the land and, and, you know, spend their day foraging for food are really good at that. But once schools arrive, the kids seem to get a lot worse at that.
0: Well, and also we have tests, like I think about the SAT that's supposed to determine, you know, how... I don't know. We can use the word smart you are. Um, but one of the things about tests like the SAT is that they assume that you think a certain way and that they assume that, you know, let's say, um, I mean, this may be the SAT or it may be an, another standardized test. But, you know, what, what would you pair, let's say, a rabbit with? you pair a rabbit with? a carrot or a dog, that's one of the examples I think you give. And it really depends on who you're asking what you pair a rabbit with.
1: Yeah, and there's different logic. So you might wanna put a rabbit with a dog because they're both animals, but you might wanna put a rabbit with a carrot because rabbits eat carrots. And I did this same kind of test working with an indigenous population, in southern rural Chile, and they wanted to put the dog and the rabbit together, not because they're both animals, but because in in their world of, of small farms, dogs take care of rabbits. So they saw a functional relationship, which is normally why people might put the rabbit and the carrot together, right, right. but they, they found a different functional right. relationship. So they came up with an analytically correct answer where you would put two kinds together, but they did it using a functional justification, which was pretty interesting.
0: So you have a big argument about how we became so weird in the West. Um, but before we get to that, I, I want to highlight a little more exactly how odd we are You write about something called the impersonal honesty game. This is a game I had never heard of. But in the impersonal honesty game, you have one dice. um, You roll it twice. Do you want to take it from there? What do you do after these two rolls of the dice?
1: So uh, participants come into a cubicle, and then they report their first roll into a computer that's in their cubicle, and then they get paid According to the amount of the dice roll. And it goes up from one, two, three, four, five, and then six is worth zero again. So your highest payment is your five, and your lowest payment is the six, which is zero. And then one is just one. So you know it's like it could be ten dollars or okay. something like that. So the person is by themselves and the experimenter can't know. But when you look across populations, you can make a calculation. And because we know in expectation, one-sixth of the time, each of the numbers from the die should appear.
0: Right, right, right. If people are always rolling the the, the priciest number, their right. questions arise, right?
1: Right. So if you were just a, you know, if you're just a money maximizer and you don't care about honesty at all, everyone would, would report fives. Right. And so the question is, how does this vary across societies? And so the first thing to point out is that all societies, there seems to be a certain degree of cheating. So if you imagine that we, we just say, um, let's just count threes, fours, and fives. So those are the high payoff okay. roles. And we compare those to sixes, ones, and twos. Okay. What you find is that uh, some societies, and these are typically Western societies, will uh, cheat maybe 10% of the time above 50%. So you'll get 65, something like that percentage of, of roles that are reported as high roles, So you have that extra little bit of reporting that isn't consistent with what we'd expect statistically. And then this seems to vary across populations. And you might think of that as being impersonally honest, but in lots of places, the way people approach this game is they're like, well, I have this impersonal institution, or if I get the money, you know, I can help my family or my cousin needs an operation, or there's all kinds of good reasons why you wouldn't do that. So you can think of it as a trade-off between some kind of Abstract commitment to this principle of fair reporting versus, you know, some well, I've got real relationships and real people that count on me, and, I, and so for that reason, I'll take the, I'll take the money.
0: So there's a couple of ways of looking at this, but one question is, why do certain groups of people, us, why do we value? sticking with this random set of rules you're telling people like for if you roll these numbers you get this amount of money and if you roll these you know numbers you get less money and and be honest about what's happening like why are we paying attention to what somebody is telling us
1: yeah i mean that's a great question and there's both kind of immediate psychological responses to that or answers to that and then kind of deeper historical questions. And it sounds like we'll get to the deeper historical Mm -hmm. answers in a little while. But my immediate explanation is that certain populations have social norms for how you deal with impersonal institutions or uh, anonymous strangers in monetary transactions. So it so happens that this experiment taps into kind of these uh, norms about fairness, equity, honest reporting that we apply when dealing with impersonal institutions. And those depend on a particular cultural evolutionary process that's unfolded over centuries, and not all populations have have experienced that. So in the absence of those norms, you do something sensible that's consistent with your real personal relationships and interpersonal responsibilities.
0: It's interesting because I think uh, people in the U.S. would think you shouldn't cheat. That's a terrible thing to do. But if you kind of back away from it and you think, well, but... And you kind of alluded to this: if somebody in your family needs food or help, why wouldn't you do what's going to net you the most money? I mean, why would you follow some arbitrary set of rules that some researcher set out for you?
1: <laughs> right, and and especially, what is your what is your loyalty to this impersonal institution? Exactly,
0: that's... maybe something more important is pressing on your mind. Exactly. Um, Okay. So let's talk about how people with this, a certain kind of Western education um, got that way. And you, you trace it way back to kind of a set of decisions that, I don't know, were, seem almost accidental in terms of uh, how they ended up impacting us. Do you want to talk a little bit about like the beginning of this as you see it? Yeah.
1: So the idea that I've been pursuing, it comes from the anthropologist Jack Goody. A number of other historians have written about it, in particular, Michael Mitterow. But the idea is that the branch of Christianity that eventually evolves into the Roman Catholic Church became increasingly obsessed with a set of prescriptions and prohibitions about marriage in the family. So one that many listeners will be familiar with are these taboos against incest that the church began disseminating in late antiquity. So think around 400, 500 CE. And this initially applied to in-laws. So uh, men could no longer marry their uh, wife's sister if your, if your wife died. This is a common practice called sororal marriage. There's also a practice called leverant marriage, which you'll find in a Bible where you're, if your husband dies, you marry his brother. So the church begins to taboo that. They okay. also begin to taboo cousin marriage. So it's first cousin marriage and then second cousin marriage. And over centuries, it eventually gets out to sixth cousin marriage by the turn of the millennium. Okay. Yeah. And so the idea is that this, along with taboos on polygyny and some rules about inheritance customs, broke European uh, kinship systems from things like clans and kindreds and these complex forms of kinship that we find in lots of places in the world still today, down to monogamous nuclear families.
0: (laughs) You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Joseph Henrich. He's the author of The Weirdest People in the World. And we're looking at how a certain group of folks started to think completely unlike those who had come before them, how their brains began to change, and then why the societies that those people built ended up becoming strangely prosperous. You can grab this whole conversation on our website, innovationhub.org, and we're going to be back to talk about how getting rid of marriage to your in-laws and your cousins could possibly have changed how patient we are, how well we recognize faces, and on and on. From GBH Radio and PRX, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Sometime between the year 500 and 600, there was a pandemic. And if you think the pandemic we're living through now has changed a lot in your life, the pandemic that happened 1,500 years ago changed just about everything. First, it's estimated to have killed half of the world's population. Second, it convinced one group of Christian leaders that God was terribly angry with them. So the leaders changed their laws to crack down on something that they thought God might not like. Marriage with close relatives, mostly cousins.
1: And so they kept uh, tamping down on this, which they thought that God wanted them to do, along with other, other aspects like things like concubinage and sex slaves and things like that. So there's a whole range of things that the church clamps down on in
0: that domain. Joseph Henrich is the chair of the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard University, and he's the author of The Weirdest People in the World, How the West Became Psychologically Peculiar and Particularly Prosperous. And he says that these rules, which probably struck people at first as very restrictive, since they were both a break from the past and a break with what most other religious groups, including other Christians, were doing, well, they changed history. Not that they meant to. Not that officials could have imagined what they had set in motion when they stopped people from reinforcing kinship ties by marrying within the extended family.
1: So I think that eventually leads people to be more individualistic and more impersonally trusting, so willing to trust strangers, more analytically inclined. And towards the end of the book, I start laying out how that connects to things like the rise of representative governments, the rise of science, And eventually, the massive increase in innovation that occurs in the 18th century and eventually leads to what historians call the Industrial
0: Revolution. Which is to say, these restrictions on who you could marry may have given us modern America. But Henrik says, oh, they gave us a lot more than that. They gave us weird brains, weird psychology, a way of looking at things that broke with our ancestors and even with our fellow humans around the world, and the oddness of how we think It's not something we've even begun to grasp.
1: So by 900 and after that, we see the beginnings of what's called the commercial revolution. So market towns begin sprouting up and people are freed from their families and they are able to move to these towns as individuals. And towns begin competing in a new way because they're they're kind of like voluntary associations. So rather than being tied to your land and tied to this kin group, you now had to set out into the world and make your own way and find your own way to build these, to create security. And so people began to form these towns and they also formed guilds. So guilds at this early point were kind of mutual insurance groups where people would get together and take care of each other when they got hurt injured or old. Okay. So they're fulfilling a function that's typically taken care of by kin groups. And this leads to the proliferation of guilds. Uh, like I said, the urbanization begins to really spread, passes China by, by around 1,200 with this growth of towns. Uh, the towns are often independent, so they're setting up their own forms of government. Now, you don't have powerful clans and lineages. So the kinds of governments that sprang up are based on these voluntary groups where There would be representatives from the different guilds. This is the beginning of representative government. You're actually representing your voluntary organization in some kind of governmental decision-making process for how the town is going to supply public goods, or defense, or build a bridge, or something like that. And then over time, people are figuring out better ways to run these voluntary associations, with things like voting and elections. Mm. You, can, you can really see this in the change in monasteries. So monasteries were very much family affairs. So if you look at Irish monasteries, they were owned by clans and passed down over generations. Okay. And then with the beginning of the Cistercians, you have independent kind of franchise houses being set up, elected elected leaders, elected abbots. And the monks could decide who could join their membership. So. You had to impress the other members of the group, whereas in a family, you know, you're just kind of born into it. And so there's there's no selectivity, not much selectivity. Uh, so those kinds of things begin changing.
0: It's interesting that you use the word franchise. Like, I think of the word franchise as associated with McDonald's. But, but franchises, whether they be, you know, monastic franchises or hamburger franchises, um, are not, I mean, you're saying, like, you get to a point where they're not given out to uh, your brother, they're given out to... You know the the person who can afford it, or who's deserving, or who seems motivated.
1: Right, and and you know these groups wanted to spread. So there was, you know, if you wanted to go set up a new Cistercian uh, monastery in some new place, the mother house would support you, and you had certain responsibilities back to the mother house, and you had to you know adhere to their rules and things like that. But other than that, you you know, you could do things in your own way, and you'd have elections and, and set your own leadership and stuff. So there was a certain amount of freedom.
0: You write that um, if like an alien anthropologist had come to Earth in like a thousand AD um, and looked around and they had to predict who was going to do the most sort of taking over of countries and that kind of thing in the in the millennium to come, they would not have picked. Europeans, like Europeans did not seem to have it together in the way that uh, that a lot of other people did, like in Asia or in the Middle East. First of all, why would they have thought, like, no, nah, Europeans, no, that's not going to happen?
1: Well, if you're just thinking about the things that would usually set off a society, you know, monumental architecture, philosophy, science, all of those things, places like China, Central Asia, the Islamic world were well ahead of Europe, which looked like a backwater. I mean, one of the fun things I got to read in the course of putting the book together were these Muslim scholars who would kind of look around the world and, you know, do kind of anthropology and kind of rate the scale of sophistication of different populations around the world. (laughs) And Europe Europe always got classed with the barbarians, right? They were the unsophisticated Mm. folks who hadn't made any important contributions yet.
0: Hmm. Okay. So then... What stopped, let's say, Asia from being the place that did, you know, take over? We know, obviously, that Europe came to the Americas, took over a lot of countries, but did that all around the world. They did that in the Pacific you know, did that all over the place. Why they, didn't that happen in other places? What was? How did kin societies, like these societies based on family connections, How were they different than what was going on in Europe?
1: Yeah, so Europe, it develops a new economic system that's based on interactions among strangers, free mobility, a lot more free mobility of labor, and then eventually you get representative government. You have representative government actually pretty early in the high Middle Ages, and then eventually it gets to the national and state level, eventually in England and then the Netherlands and and other places as the centuries go by. So you get a different kind of government. You get faster innovation, especially in the military realm, because human, uh, our European populations are still competing with each other. And this mm-hmm. is driving the weapons and military, as well as other kinds of technologies. And many of the ideas that Europe is using, it's it's getting from Central Asia or China or other places like that. But then it's kind of pushing them and recombining them in new ways, also from the New World.
0: Um- You know, we had talked about how early Christian leaders made some really fateful decisions about who you could marry um, that had all these really strange downstream effects about, you know, innovation and how much money you were going to make. But you also say that the split between Catholics and Protestants that happened in the 1500s mattered a lot to the world that we live in. And, you know... um, and if you were to, you know, drop in on some undergraduate somewhere in, in the U.S., how those people think was driven a lot by that split.
1: Right. And one of the things that I want to uh, get to in the book is, you know, there's a, there's a f- famous work by Weber arguing that, the, you know, Protestantism had a big association with the kind of economic forms and the way people thought and mm-hmm. lived after Protestantism. But part of my effort here is to explain how you can ever get to Protestantism in the first place. So this is a highly individualistic faith where each individual is expected to read the sacred scriptures for themselves and then build their own personal relationship with the, you know, the creator of the universe, the, the single God. And that's not something I think other societies could ever think of because the individual is so insignificant. How could they be expected to interpret the sacred scriptures, you know, and hmm. read them and then and then build this relationship? So the, the populations only become highly literate as Protestantism diffuses because everybody's expected to learn To read in order to read the sacred scriptures. And of course, becoming literate has big effects on the flow of information among minds and on, you know, people can get ideas not only from those around them, but from people far away and in the past.
0: And it's interesting, you don't think like that what has caused you to learn to read is that, you know, hundreds of years ago, Martin Luther was like, you know what, we should do, we should break away from the Catholic Church. But in fact, that's pretty much why we have, it sounds like we have societies where most everybody knows how to read.
1: Yeah. And once Protestantism gets this started, you know, then the Catholics have to compete with Protestants. So they begin to develop cathedral schools and the Jesuits, who were a, hmm. a group of Catholics that were kind of the part of the Counter Reformation. So they began to develop schools and universities as a way of competing with the Protestants. They actually have a lot of Protestant values that they adopted, but stayed within the church. So it's that competition actually that drives this. Some of the interesting research I got to dig into was this looking at how missions affect literacy in Africa. And Protestant missions are much more, historical missions are much more associated with greater literacy, you know, 50 or 100 years later than Catholic missions, except when the two are competing in the same regions. And then the Catholics seem to step it up, probably because of this direct competition with the Protestants
0: but then a society where people are illiterate where most people are illiterate that society actually thinks right differently than a society where most people aren't
1: yeah so that's one of the things that takes us back to the neuroscience we discussed before where when yeah. you learn to read it actually shapes your brain and so even when you hear speech so you know so reading is about seeing writing but when you hear speech you get more whole brain activation for this speech, and so, and you have a longer verbal memory. So again, it's shaping how you think you approach things more analytically.
0: So this is interesting for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons that occurs to me is like, I've talked to so many people about experiments that have been done. Like, oh, we did this experiment and now we know how people think in X, Y, or Z way. But if what you're saying is that experiments that are done on college campuses in any part of the world, it does not matter where those college campuses are, it matters that they're a college, if those experiments are done on basically weird and kind of aberrant people, because those people are not how most people are, they're not how historical people have been, is it possible that the things we think about human psychology are wrong because we've been doing the experiments on the wrong people?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that I think we already know that that's a problem to some degree. I'm I'm just not sure how big the problem is. I guess I know it's big. I'm not sure if it's huge. So just to give you an example, to get to be in a college, you have to have gone through this training where you spent right. years training your brain to read, training your mind to do math. And we know when we compare people who who say learn math or or have an, have a language with numbers in them even, versus other populations, we see differences in their cognition and how they deal with numbers. Uh, we've talked about the way that reading affects your brain, affects things like verbal memory. So you can't even get basic aspects of brains or things like psychology, memory, attention correct by studying people who have. And that's just the effect of educational institutions, let alone the effect of individualistic societies, markets, and some of these other institutions that, w- that we learn about. And then there eventually things like technology uh, is also going to shape our minds.
0: And just to underscore this, if you're, you know, at whatever, Rice University in Houston and you're doing these experiments, it's not enough, you're saying, I think, to get like, you know, a college student who's from Vietnam and somebody else who's from Germany and somebody else who's from America in your lab because, oh, well, you're representing a diverse group of people because you're really not.
1: Yeah, we need theories that explain the variation. So there, you might be homogenizing on the key element. So in the case of studying something like verbal memory, You might think well uh, well, i can assume if i get someone from vietnam and someone from texas and someone from vanuatu to to do this test but if everyone has been to school and they're all university students Mm -hmm. they've all been forced to learn to read so they're all going to have longer verbal memories than someone who didn't learn to read they might also have worse fit for face recognition and less holistic perception of space i mean so there's these interesting patterns
0: Okay, and let's take our last break here. We're going to be back in just a minute for our final few moments with Joe Henrich. He's the author of The Weirdest People in the World, How the West Became Psychologically Peculiar and Particularly Prosperous. And when we come back, the question of marshmallows and how they factor into our way of thinking If you want to read more about the theories and the history that we've been talking about, you can find it on our website, innovationhub.org. You can also give us your feedback there, or you can email us. We're innovationhub at wgbh.org. From GBH Radio and PRX, I'm Kara Miller. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. And during the years that I've hosted this show, there are a few stories that keep coming up. One of the most popular that I've heard is about marshmallows. The myth of the marshmallow test,
1: what a lot of people believe, is that it showed that there are certain kids that are good at waiting for the second marshmallow, and those kids are going to be wildly successful. They're going to do well in their SATs. They're going to go on to be high earners. And there are some... That are just not going to pass the marshmallow test, and they're basically doomed to failure in life. I'm kind of painting it with a broad brush.
0: That's author Bina Venkatraman talking to me in 2019 about a study that became famous for what it revealed about patience and success. The test was created by a psychologist named Walter Mischel, who as a child had fled Nazi-occupied Austria for America. In the 1960s, when Michelle was teaching at Stanford University, he started doing an experiment with preschoolers that perhaps more than any other psychology experiment has captured the American imagination.
1: So in the marshmallow experiment, it's usually done with children. And you give the, child, the kid one marshmallow and you tell them if they wait until you come back in the room, you'll give them a second marshmallow and they they film the kid or watch them through a one-way mirror or something.
0: Joseph Henrik is an anthropologist with wide-ranging interests who I talked to back in 2020. He also happens to have a degree in aerospace engineering, and he's taught economics.
1: So the experimenter leaves the room, And generally, they wait until the kid collapses and eats the marshmallow or some fixed period of time, like 50 minutes. So the poor kid is just being tortured. And then the amount of time the children wait seems to predict a lot of things and can even predict things, you know, a decade in the future, school performance, savings, things like that, uh, amount of education they go on to get.
0: Michelle would later do the experiment in the South Bronx with poorer children, and he found many of the same results as he had in the earlier experiments with wealthier children. The experiment has also been done within families and siblings who can wait longer for the marshmallow or another treat. They tend to be more successful as adults.
1: That's some of the most persuasive evidence because you've got kids who have grown up in the same family, so all that's held constant. And the only thing you do is measure their, their marshmallow patients at a young age and then see how that affects their, how much education they get or uh, you know whether they smoke or you know things like that. Things that require this self-regulation that is, you capture in the marshmallow test.
0: So the marshmallow metric, if you want to call it that, has caught on. Problem is, the value we place on patience and waiting it out, that's weird, Henrik argues. And it's a complete break with how many people across the sweep of human history have thought, including our ancestors. Henrik is the author of The Weirdest People in the World, How the West Became Psychologically Peculiar and Particularly Prosperous. And he's a professor at Harvard. He says... We've been looking at studies like the marshmallow experiment for years to reveal something about the human brain. But they mostly tell us how unusual our society is, and perhaps very little about our brains.
1: And the interesting thing about the marshmallow test is it seems to correlate with these delay discounting measures that economists like. So in these kinds of things, I'll give you an amount of money now or an amount of money if you wait a certain period of time. And by giving you a lot of different choices, I can figure out how much you discount the future. So how much extra I have to give you to make, to make you wait.
0: The idea is you can have $100 now, or if you wait a year, I'll give you more money. In that sort of experiment, the most patient countries Are Sweden, the Netherlands, the US, and Canada. Swedes, on average, need to be paid $144 to wait a year. Rwandans have to be paid $212 to wait a year. And Russians and Iranians also have to be paid quite a lot. But what if we've reprogrammed our brains to adopt certain qualities? Henrik says, that's exactly what we've done. And it started about 1,500 years ago when one branch of Christianity started cracking down on marrying within your kin group, like marrying your cousins. This was an odd decision, but it resulted in the fracturing of kin groups, which were very important in most societies. Nuclear families resulted, people became more mobile, and certain qualities were increasingly important when you were trying to make it out there in the labor market.
1: Part of the long-term argument is that in this world where you have markets and you're kind of getting social credit for developing these, these relationships, not being impulsive, those kinds of things where you can, you can accumulate individual wealth, that's gonna put a premium on any socialization practices or institutions that allow individuals to cultivate that long-term patience, avoid, avoid the impulses.
0: Then, 500 years ago, another group of Christians, Protestants, again did something peculiar. They got really into reading. Now they read because they thought it would help them get closer to God, but reading set off a series of dominoes that Henrik says changed the structure of our brains. I mean physically changed them. We gained certain abilities and we lost others. And people who learn to read, who are educated in a Western way, no matter where they are in the world, they have these weird brains that are unlike more traditional human brains. Brains that make all sorts of choices that would have shocked societies across space and time. And Henrik argues, we're increasingly exporting the weirdness.
1: As societies urbanize and modern institutions spread, Lots of societies around the world have copied the civil codes, for example, the family structures that began to be prevalent in European and European descent societies. They spread globally. Um, Now, of course, there's still lots of interesting variation, but especially in urbanized populations where people are really plugged into the labor market, involved in international institutions, and kind of governed by the laws rather than the customs of the society, you, you can find lots of variation there. And that's actually one of the ways in which I get data relevant for for testing some of these ideas. So, you know, in some chapters, I look at data where I just look at one ethnic group in Ethiopia that's having differing degrees of exposure to the market, and then I, what that allows me to try to figure out how markets affect how people think.
0: Hmm. I'm going to ask you a bigger question here, but um, we've just been through a very contentious election, and uh, you hear a lot of people saying. These other people, the people in the other party, they're terrible, they're ruining America, and they're nothing like me. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I mean, I've heard people say that on both sides. Sure. And I, I, I just wonder if you ever think, given the work that you do, the cultural divide, is it more profound than we realize or than when we give credit for?
1: Yeah, and uh, I mean, I think there's an increasing body of data to confirm that. So one of the aspects of psychology that I develop in the book uh, is based on the work of John Haidt and Jesse Graham, who talk about these five moral foundations. And uh, you can reduce their five foundations, uh, which include things like harm and care and in-group loyalty, purity, which is kind of a divinity dimension you can reduce them down to a single dimension which runs from universalistic, so people who are concerned about justice for all and fairness uh, and taking care of uh, people who need taken care of, down to people who care more about things like in-group loyalty and hierarchy and tend to have fairly tight norms and want people to behave in certain ways. And so you get this single axis. And uh, there's an economist, one of my colleagues at Harvard named Benjamin Anke, and Ben got data from this website that John Haidt put together where you, people take the, an instrument that allows us to measure your moral psychology. And then he, he was able to get county-level data for that. So people, all of, you know, hundreds of thousands of people from all around the U.S. do it. This gives us county-level data for variation within the United States. And you find lots of variation in people's moral psychology with some counties tending to be more towards in-group loyalty and others okay. being more universalistic. And then what he did is he used that to predict the proportion of votes that went for Trump in 2016. And he finds that counties that were not universalistic, that were more towards in-group loyalty and hierarchy, were much higher in voting for Trump. And this was over and above votes for Romney and McCain. So you can subtract out the sort of generic Republican vote and just focus on people who are especially enthusiastic about Trump. And it really captures this moralistic division that you find in the country. And then he went to political speeches, and he found that uh, over the last decade, since 2008, there's been this growing divide where it used to be that Republicans and Democrats had similar on in terms of individualism. But recently, Republicans have declined a lot in their individualism, and Democrats have, I think, have stayed about the same. So Mm. this has caused uh, a big increase. Interestingly, John McCain was highly uh, universalistic compared to other Republicans, so he's a little bit of a little bit of an aberration. but May uh, also so, explain
0: so. why he wasn't very popular with a lot of Republicans. <laughs> exactly. I mean, he, he
1: didn't get the base out, I mean. right?
0: Right, right. Yeah, so. So, so does that make so does the work you've done then make you think differently about America? Do you think then than a lot of other people think about it?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think yeah. what we're seeing is a growing psychological divide al- along this kind of moral psychology or tightness versus looseness, I think, plays a role here in terms of your, your concerns about norms. and. Some of the reasons why that might be occurring relate to ideas I develop in the book. So one of the key things I think that the kinship does is it allows people to be residentially mobile. So I talked about how people were moving to these urban areas and joining these voluntary associations. But the U.S. in the last two decades has suffered a big decline in both class Mm. mobility but also residential Mm. mobility. Mm. So people in rural counties are tending to stay there. Right? And so you're creating this right. kind of enduring social networks that people know the same people their whole lives. Whereas in the urban areas, people are mobile, they're moving cities, or they're moving friends. And uh, so it's just, it this emphasizes the, t- the two different worlds.
0: It's interesting because I've talked to many political scientists over the years, and I always come into the conversation thinking, well, people vote on issues, right? Maybe they have a certain view about taxes, or they have a certain view about abortion, or they have a certain view on something. Um, and, and I, I mean, to the last person, I feel like they've been like, no, no, that's really not how people make decisions. <laughs> they make decisions on culture and they back into the issues. Yeah, And it's, I think that's so hard for average people to understand. I still have trouble wrapping my mind around it. But I feel like you're saying, yeah, it's much more about culture than it is about people sitting there with a checklist and thinking during a debate, who checks the boxes?
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I wrote this essay called It's the Moral Psychology Stupid, uh, which, you know, <laughs> plays on on Carville's famous claim about the economy. But yes, because uh, I think that's the key thing that is often missing. And it's of course it's super frustrating for scientists, academics like me, because, you know, we want to have the policy debate and get out the charts and stuff like that. But the, but I know from my, my actual research that the charts aren't going to do any good.
0: Is there a last takeaway for people to consider, um, something we have not discussed, but, you know, that builds on what we've talked about, this kind of notion that changes to our brains brought about by activities like reading have changed us, have fundamentally changed us. I I just wonder what is that final takeaway for you?
1: The biggest picture, the biggest thing I wanted to kind of convey to my colleagues in the behavioral and psychological sciences is that we need to think about human psychology and how it co-evolves with institutions. So I pointed out these things about the family, but there's also the effects of markets on our psychology, the effects of this competition amongst firms and other kinds of voluntary associations, how religion shapes how we think. So you got to be really careful about exporting institutions or policies that are developed based on insights from behavioral economics, which is you know arisen mostly in the U.S. and Europe around the world, because it could really backfire. So something as simple as the endowment effect, where people place more weight on things they themselves own, you know, we've already found populations that don't have it all at all. Even in Japan, it's much weaker. So you know, if you had an, a policy designed on that. It would, it would be less effective in Japan and not effective at all in groups in Tanzania.
0: But I think it that's a it's a very interesting point the notion that we do these experiments and we think that that is how he, that is what human psychology is like and we may just be plain old wrong about that.
1: Yeah, and that led to my colleagues and I coining this acronym WEIR, which stands for Western Educated Industrialized Rich and Democratic, because we wanted to kind of remind experimentalists and behavioral scientists that the populations that they typically gravitate to and are the easiest ones to do experiments on are often, not always, but often the least representative or the ones Mm -hmm. you want to be most cautious when generalizing from.
0: Joseph Henrich is professor of human evolutionary biology at Harvard University. He's the author of The Weirdest People in the World, How the West Became Psychologically Peculiar and Particularly Prosperous. Joe, thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Kara. We've got a lot more on our website about weird societies and how they got that way. We've also got this full interview for you. That's at innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, and associate producer Sarah Leeson. From PRX and GBH, I'm Tara Miller. This is Innovation Hub.